Longest Day is a podcast from a female-founded destination practice that believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. We are an organization unafraid of crisis, but have never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to the crisis in the first place, there's always something we can learn. I'm Leah, the founder and CEO of Broadstairs Consulting, a problem-solving consultancy offering crisis and governance advisory services to help leaders and organizations thrive and flourish. We operate in the gap between legal and public relations, at the coalface of difficult situations, believing that most crises are avoidable and the impact of inevitable ones usually can be mitigated. Our guests have overcome a litany of crises. Many of our guests have worked with us in some capacity in the past. All of them have stories worth hearing, We trust them to make this worth your while. We hope it helps you trust us. Today's guest on The Longest Day is Nick Grono. Nick was appointed as the inaugural CEO of the Freedom Fund in January 2014. The fund is an ambitious effort to mobilize the knowledge, capital, and will needed to end modern slavery. Since its inception, the Freedom Fund has worked with over 128 frontline partners around the world to directly liberate 31,000 78 people from slavery, and return over 192,000 at-risk children back to school. Overall, its programs have positively impacted the lives of over 1 million of those most vulnerable to exploitation, and it is changing the systems that place many millions more at risk of slavery. Nick serves on the advisory councils of Global Witness and the McCain Institute. He was previously the chair of the Joe Cox Foundation and a board member of Girls Not Bridges, the global partnership to end child marriage. Prior to the Freedom Fund, Nick was the inaugural CEO of the Walk Free Foundation, a leading international actor in the fight against modern slavery. Before Walk Free, Nick was the deputy president and chief operating officer of the International Crisis Group, the world's leading conflict prevention NGO, headquartered in Brussels with offices in over 20 countries. Nick is a lawyer by background, and prior to ICG was chief of staff and national security advisor to the Australian Attorney General. He has a law degree with first-class honours from the University of Sydney and a master's in public policy from Princeton University. Well, Nick, thank you for joining us and welcome to The Longest Day. Leah, it's lovely to be here. So perhaps you might like to tell us about your longest day. Sure. Um, So my longest day was September 11, 2001. So happened that I was in New York that time. I'm Australian. I was on a study tour. I was working for the government. Uh, and so I was there when 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 the events unfolded. Um, I was actually, I mean, everyone that had access to a television was on TV after they heard about the first um, plane hitting the World Trade Center. And I was then on the phone to the State Department and we were kind of talking about, was this an accident? You know, everyone has these stories. And at that very moment, the second plane hit the World Trade Center. So we both ended the call, realized mm. you know, this wasn't an accident. It was uh, it was an attack. Uh, yeah. So that was the start of my of my longest day. And how did you and your responsibilities unfold as the day, day went on? Yeah. So I wasn't strictly there in a work capacity. It was like a study tour and I was going to meet various officials, but it very quickly turned into a work trip for me because... Um, I was the chief of staff to the Australian Attorney General. Within my portfolio, I had responsibility for national security matters. Um, I had been planning to go to Washington, D.C. a couple of days later. 
Uh, and so we, um, so I reached out to officials and we quickly turned that because we, we were aware, of course, that, that this would change everything in terms of kind of counterterrorism and, um, and also in terms of allies of the US um, being called upon to respond and support the response. So, so I went, when I went to DC a couple of days later, had meetings with, at the FBI, you know, and bearing in mind this stage, everyone was extremely nervous. I, mean, I was the first non-US person to have a meeting inside the FBI building in DC. I was the first non-American to have a meeting with CIA. Um, but um, yeah, but that was that was very timely that you know I could do all of that. And was there anything in your career to date that prepared you for? this moment? Well, nothing quite prepares you for this, right? But what was really interesting is Australia had hosted the Olympic Games in 2000 and the Attorney General, my boss, was responsible for Olympic security and we were acutely conscious of terrorism risk, right? We were doing lots of scenario planning. Um, I mean, what was quite striking to me is Australia was thinking about the risks of kind of Islamic extremism, terrorism, before much of the rest of the world was because we had a terrorist group as uh, Jamar Islamaya up in Indonesia. So we had been kind of concerned about potential risks. We had done planning exercises that involved the prime minister, the full cabinet, the military, the police, emergency services. So certainly wasn't prepared for anything like this, but immediately that kind of training and thinking kicked in. It made me aware of just how well Australia had been preparing for risks a couple of, uh, well, what was it, a year, a year or so earlier. I often like to assume that the likes of government departments, FBI, CIA, are extremely well-versed to respond to a crisis. Um, although we've had the biggest experiment so far with COVID. Um what did you see in the people that were around you who were having to respond um, to the events that unfolded on September the 11th? And what did that show you about yourself? It's it's so interesting to think back, isn't it? I mean, it's what, 23 years ago now. I mean, first response, my first response in everyone's is just utter horror once you, it was this very slow dawning that it was an attack, as I said, because it unfolded over the the two strikes and then news coming in about the Pentagon and the plane that went down and just just a, a sense of shock and, you know, and then then it plays out. I remember I remember many things. I couldn't see the World Trade Centre from where I was. I was staying at the Australian Embassy, uh, the, the, the residence in New York, and we couldn't see the World Trade Centre, but you could see the plumes of smoke. And then two or three hours later, you could see people trudging covered in dust because, of course, all the public transport was closed down. So people were trying to get away and walk away and walk home. But it was also a really weird time because shops were open, right? But there was no traffic on the street. So you had this bizarre experience of walking through Manhattan in the middle of a day, walking up and down First Avenue, Second Avenue with no traffic whatsoever. And um, and then the people around me, um, I mean, it just so happened that that I was working with, staying with some Arctic professionals, so the Australian ambassador to the UN, John Douth, um, you know, immediately understood that there'd be a lot of coalition building, outreach, and was was just on on the job straight away. And the 
the Australian ambassador in DC was a guy called Dennis Richardson, who had previously headed up Australia's domestic security intelligence service. So he was as well prepared as anyone. And it was him that was saying, right, let's schedule meetings with CIA, FBI, other officials and all the rest of it. So the direct response, I thought, my very limited experience, of course, I wasn't back in Australia, but I, I know from my experience of the training through the Olympic security process that we had the mechanisms in place. It's not always like that at all, right? It really isn't. And I can't imagine what it would have been like in those first 24, 48 hours in DC, for instance, where you're just struggling to comprehend what is going on and, and terrified that there are more attacks underway and you know, but also trying not to panic the population and all of these things. It's, it's kind of crisis response on a scale that's really hard to comprehend, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And I happened to be in Washington, D.C. then. I was a junior in high school right. and uh, my dad was supposed to be in the Pentagon that day, right. as I mentioned earlier. My question is this. It's easy to presume that a, pri a crisis will pass as quickly as it has come, but more often than not, it's a marathon, not a sprint. How long did it take before you and your team were able to exhale? I don't know if I can answer that because, I mean, it was the beginning of a process, wasn't it? I mean, it fundamentally changed everything in terms of security um, and, and a lot of it for, for the worse. Uh, I mean, it was inexorable kind of steps from there to... Afghanistan, Iraq, and Australia was very much on the front lines of this. I left government um, about four months later. I'd already, I'd, I'd stayed to get through um, an election and so on. I was due to go to study in the US. Um, and I'm quite glad that I left government then because it led, I mean, Conservative Government Australia lent into a much more securitised approach to everything, right, to borders and to um, engagement in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's understandable why that happened, but I kind of look back and think there was almost a kind of innocence pre-2001 um, in terms of the infrastructure and the policies and, and a whole lot of things. So, so, and it's still playing out in some ways. I mean, not as immediately, but but I, I think for, for at least six months or so, there was just this intense response, right, because there was the immediate response with, with Afghanistan, but but everything else that went through it. So, you know, some people probably haven't still <laughs> um, relaxed since, since those attacks. You mentioned that you left government not long after. And obviously, um, 2001 was a really long time ago. Um, you're doing some really exciting things now. How did you get from being a government servant um, to running the Freedom Fund? Yeah, so there is a very direct connection um, because I went and did a master's in public policy at Princeton University where I focused very heavily on both national security and conflict and did a did a workshop on conflict prevention and lent right into that. And then after that, I got a job because, you know, uh, again, we had Afghanistan, we had Iraq, but we had issues around failed states. We had uh, the situation in Indonesia and, and some of the groups there. So to me, that was the immediate outtake was we have to think much more deeply about the drivers of terrorism and extremism and the way in which failed, failing um, states contribute to 
uh, our lack of security. And so I then went and worked for a, an amazing organization called the International Crisis Group, which works on conflicts all around the world, which has a bunch of former um, foreign ministers, prime ministers, and Nobel Prize winners on its board. It was headed at that time by the former Australian foreign minister. And so I spent nine years intensively engaged in the work that Crisis Group does about re deeply researching conflict on the ground and then producing a high-level, um, well-researched report and advocating to policymakers. Um, it also exposed me to, you know, one of the many horrors of conflict, which is slavery uh, and trafficking, vulnerable populations that are horrendously exploited. Um, I went to, uh, one of my trips went to northern Uganda, um, I was meeting with um, uh, Northern Uganda and Southern Sudan, meeting with former LRA um, combatants who were negotiating, but also meeting um, girls and boys who had been abducted and enslaved, either as sex slaves in the case of the girls and child soldiers in the case of the boys. And so that was my first awareness of direct awareness of um, or direct encounter with the horrors of, of modern slavery. Um, and a couple of years after that, I was approached, or a few years after that, I was approached to lead a new organization uh, working on slavery, which became the co-founder of the Freedom Fund. So not a, a long path, a um, long and winding path, but I can see very direct connections to the kind of the conflict, uh, what I experienced in September 11 and where I've ended up. Are you feeling stuck? Has conflict got you down? Have you considered mediation? Mediation is a confidential and flexible way to resolve conflicts. 86% of all mediations end in a solution, saving time, money, and stress for all involved. Thanet Mediation Center, a Broadstairs consulting initiative, offers mediation services to individuals and organizations in Thanet, Kent, and further afield. For more information or advice, email us at info at broadstairsconsulting.com. We are here to help you move forwards. One of the commonalities of difficult situations or conflict or war zones is the prevalence of fear. How has your experience of these different types of conflicts changed your relationship with fear? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I have been to a lot of challenging places, but I've never been in a situation where I feel directly for my life. I've just been fortunate enough. I've been to Afghanistan multiple times and southern Sudan and Sudan and Syria and Lebanon, but, you know, managed the trips and all the rest of it. So I haven't, um, I sometimes think I, I lack an imagination um, because I don't, I don't have a particular fear about going to situations where I know that we've done the prep and we understand the security situations. Um, it's more it's more relevant to me. I, I, I get a lot of distress from some of the situations that um, that you encounter, right? Because you meet with people who are desperately vulnerable and have been exposed to the most horrendous situations. And you go in and, of course, we, the Freedom Fund, are trying our best to support these people have been subject to horrendous exploitation. Um, but that can't help but impact you. And, and, and it's wrapped up in feelings of guilt because you kind of fly in and fly out. And even though you're doing your work, you know, people are still often in, uh, in, left in these horrendous situations. So fear is not so much the issue. It's this um, distress 
around secondary trauma and guilt that gets wrapped up in it because and feelings of inadequacy that, you know, we're doing an amazing job at the Freedom Fund, but there's only so much we can do as an organisation. So, yeah, that, that's how I've reframed the question. Obviously, modern slavery is at the top of the legislative conversation in the UK. And one of the greatest challenges I think we face is how we view people and what our view is of humanity. What advice would you give to leaders who are struggling to understand the conversation, who are struggling to engage with the policy conversations and who are frustrated um, with the way that issues that go to the core of humanity are currently being discussed? Well, I think however complex a scenario, there's always human beings at the centre of it. And I just, I, I, I watch these debates. I watch the debates about the immigration legislation and demonization of people who have been enslaved and trafficked. And I just think it's so desperately sad. And I think there's often a desire to other people uh, in a way that allows you to shut out the humanity and the emotion. Um, and I get these are complex policy issues, but uh, it always behoves us to have an understanding of the humanity at the centre of the question. I, I often talk, I often think about refugee issues in particular, and you know, I know that if I was unfortunate enough to have been born and grown up and have kids in Syria, I would be desperately trying to find ways to get them out of that country. And I suspect any anyone that's driven enough and resourceful enough would. So I, I have a deep understanding and sympathy. That, of course, doesn't answer the issue of what does one do about massive refugee flows, but I think it can at least lead to a more humane approach and understanding what can be done rather than this horrendous othering of, of, of people who are just desperately seeking a, a life for themselves. One of the things that marks out the Freedom Fund's work is the breadth of its reach. What are your main goals for the next five years? Yeah, so we're working to tackle modern slavery and human trafficking around the world. Some 50 million people subject to sex trafficking, forced labour, bonded labour, forced marriage. Uh, and it's, a, it's an industry that generates at least a couple of hundred billion dollars in profit a year. And, and the organisation I lead, the Freedom Fund, has a budget of $28 million. There's, a, there's a slight disparity there in terms of the scale of the problem and the resources. So what we have to do is think how can we have the greatest impact with what we do. And we do that by working with grassroots frontline organisations that can absolutely have the greatest impact on the populations that are vulnerable. But the way you try and amplify and leverage that is by really in-depth research, showing these 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 approaches can make a huge difference and uh, that if we invest in really thoughtful community-based approaches, we can have an outsized uh, impact. Um, so that's, that's and we're just leaning into that. There's so much more we can do. We're 10 years old, um, you know, we're just getting started um, and we can shape others' approaches to slavery. That's always my ambition, shape the way governments approach it, shape the understandings. Um, understand that if we invest at the community level, we have a better chance of providing, uh, supporting resilient communities, which then reduces, among other things, some of the demands for people to leave and move. And, you know, but if you're cutting aid budgets and if you're, you know, just closing your mind to these issues, you are not going to address the problem at source, which is what we need to do. 
Absolutely. If you had to condense the character trait that has helped you the most in your career from your longest day until now, what would that be? It would be a willingness to make decisions. And it's not always a good thing. I'm kind of unlearning some of this. Um, But I've always been happy to take responsibility and make decisions. And I think for leaders, that always helps, but it can also be a very negative thing. You know, and early in my, earlier in my leadership experience, I was kind of unilateral, much more unilateral in my decision-making and kind of mistook um, um, decisiveness or kind of thought for, or mistook, you know, the need to make decisions as a, a, a as as requiring me not to consult and bring others along with me. Um, so it is a good trait, I think. You know, it's appalling if a leader isn't willing to make decisions in the end, but you really have to do so by bringing others, consulting, getting the right information, ideally having a team around you. Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And like all of these things, it's a double-edged sword, um, both positive and negative. At Broadstairs Consulting, we are incredibly passionate about food. And so we like to ask all of our podcast guests, if you had to live your longest day again, what food would you choose to fuel it? Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I mean, I love my food too, but I but I kind of think in a time of crisis, I, I, I kind of lean into my comfort food. So, um, you know, Certainly on, on that day and any long day, it's kind of chocolate and caffeine, but it's also carbs and, um, you yeah, know, so I would not be uh, um, opting for all the magnificent cuisine that I love, but probably just for pizza and probably some fries as well, just to power me through a very long... <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant and not at all what I was expecting. Um, Nick, it's been so great to hear the journey um, that your career has taken you on through different governments and different stakeholders and different countries that you visited and people that you've seen and opportunities that you've had to impact many, many, many people who, but for the grace of God, go we. And uh, thank you for sharing your experiences so openly. And it's been great having you on The Longest Day. Thanks, Leah. It's been a great discussion. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a Broadstairs Consulting Limited podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Tune in soon to hear the next installment of The Longest Day. Copyright 2023. Production copyright. Broadstairs Consulting Limited. All rights reserved.